the Buddha said to the five disciples as he gave his very first talk, just as one faring through a forest should see an ancient road traversed by people of former times with beautiful pools, groves, and gardens, so have I seen an ancient path traversed by enlightened ones of old. Having fully come to know this path, I have established this way for the welfare of all. And we've been traveling this path together these past weeks, guided by the support of the paramis, developing them and strengthening them along the way. And the paramis fit beautifully together with the path, the Eightfold Path, the baskets of sila, samadhi, concentration, and with wisdom. The paramis interweave with all of those. They're all aligned with not causing harm, and through practicing them we come to wise understanding. Right view, the wise understanding that sets the direction for everything we do. From a deep understanding of the kinds of causes and conditions that lead to suffering, and from the causes and conditions that lead to freedom, liberation. And also we begin to understand the significance of impermanence, selflessness, and the changing nature of everything. And from that we start to form our core values how it is that we can bring happiness, what it is we can do in our lives that will lead to freedom. But it's one thing to have these core values, and it's one thing to know about the path, and it's a whole other thing to be able to keep walking the path, and to be able to bring our ideas into action. And intention is the quality that empowers us to align our thoughts and our words with our actions and with our deepest values. And it's the second path factor, sama samkapa, or wise intention, sometimes translated as thought, wise thought, wise aspiration. Because the night of his enlightenment, the Buddha saw something very simple and very, very crucial to our liberation. It was a simple thing that he had two types of thoughts. Thoughts that were skillful and led to skillful intentions, skillful actions, and happiness. And another kind of thought that were unskillful, or what he called, what is translated as wrong thought leading to wrong intention, unskillful action, and suffering. And it sounds very obvious, but it's actually really profound if we understand that deeply. In order to have skillful intentions, we have to have right view. It's very simple. It's the um, understanding of karma that Trudy's been talking about, that all of our actions have consequences. And intention is the bridge or the link between our understanding and between um, how we manifest with ourselves, with each other, and with other beings on the planet. 
Philip Moffat calls intention the pivot point that allows us to dance with life. So the causes for all the difficulties in the world, the competition, the endless aggression and conflict and injustice and oppression, don't lie outside the mind. They're all manifestations of intentions that are driven by motivations of greed, aversion, and confusion, delusion. And the surest guarantee of wise or right intention is having a wise view or having a motivations that come from generosity, kindness, compassion, wisdom, all of the paramis. So the Buddha said, intention, I tell you, is karma. Words and actions that are based on greed, hatred, and delusion lead to um, unwholesome karma and suffering. Those that are based on the paramis lead to wholesome happiness, to liberation. And one of the ways I find helpful to think of it is that it's as though we all have within us the seeds or the consequences of all sorts of um, conditions from our past, from our parents' past, from the generations before us. And all of them, given the right conditions, will bloom in the future. We're just full of all of these different seeds. There are, quotes, past karma. We're gardens of hundreds of these seeds. And which, whatever ones grow, depend on the intention and motivation that we're acting with in the present moment. And what determines the fruits of them is, again, our, mo our mo motivation and intention right now, even as we're listening. So it's not a closed mechanistic system. Every action we do in the present moment feeds into this stream and influences the unfolding. So how we are, whatever we do, determines which little seeds in the garden will grow. Intention is the volitional activity. It's that about-to moment, the impulse. It's the quality of willing something to happen, and it energizes the mind to affect an action. And if you remember, when I was talking about the five qualities or factors, the five aggregates, this is the fourth one, that one that um, is what we do with what we know. It's the mental factor, the sankhara. It's what gathers together or organizes all the other mental factors and affects an action with them. So it directs them to accomplish a goal. It's the initiating or commanding force in the mind, the power to bring about a result. So it's, it's a huge thing. It can be a very small little seed that we sow that will grow a great forest in the future. And um, this is an example of what we can do these days with intention. And I just happened to read this a few days ago. There's um, now an, a Los Angeles-based confectioner called Intentional Chocolate. And Intentional Chocolate joined with a research group, and they introduced a line of intention-enhanced chocolate. And this is chocolates that infused 
with the positive intention of experienced meditators at Deer Park Monastery in Madison, Wisconsin. And this is what the CEO says. We are trying to use our business to raise awareness about the powerful impact of intention. And according to this, in a double-blind, placebo-controlled study, <laughs> it's true, well, it was published in a scientific journal, it was found that one ounce of intentional chocolate per day for three days increased the subject's well-being, vigor, and energy by 67%, and in some cases up to 1,000% <laughs> when compared with a control group. <laughs> so I'm really sorry that I didn't read this before I came on the retreat and I could have given you some. <laughs> <laughs> So intentions are powerful. <laughs> so the thing about intentions is that they can be very tiny intentions and they're happening moment to moment to moment. Eating, walking, whatever it is that we're doing, they're arising every moment. And because they're not the predominant factor in our awareness, we don't notice them. And you could in connect with your intention in this moment. There might be some intention to listen. And then some fascinating fantasy might arise and all of a sudden the intention to follow that happens. And off you go. But you didn't notice the second intention. But there's this flow of intention if you watch carefully. And sometimes you can notice an energetic shift in your body. This about to move. It's about to change position before it happens. You can catch it before you're about to reach for something. And when we can notice that about to point, it really gives us a choice. And we start to notice something really interesting. And that's that intention or volition doesn't just happen at the beginning of an action. It's just like all the five experiences, all the five qualities, there's a constant arising and passing of intention. It's happening all the way through an action. So there's, I pick this up, and there's an about to ring the bell. And if in the moment of about to, another impulse comes, this is the wrong time to ring the bell, back it comes. The ringing of the bell requires a continuous intention to ring it. And at any moment, it's like a, an electrical current. If the attention st intention stops, the light will go off. It requires moment to moment of this flow. And that's crucial, really, to the understanding of intention. It's moment to moment. So it's different from a goal. So sometimes we, we set a goal and we think that that will do it. But then we realize we've never followed up, followed up with it. But that's because intention has to keep happening. And you know, you can have the intention to be with the breath at the beginning of a sit. And then you lose the intention. <laughs> Some other intention comes along. And in order to keep being with the breath, you have to keep making the intention. So it's, a, it's an arising and passing of intention. It's not a solid thing. And also, the other thing that's interesting about intention is that actually is a neutral quality, but it's colored by the underlying motivations or views. And it's vital to know the motivations 
because often they're mixed and the motivation itself is also arising and passing. Different motivations come in and we may start out with a very pure motivation. There's the intention and desire for the truth of pure motivation and it starts out as being pure, but then it becomes the desire to become the one who knows the truth. So pride has arisen. Or it might be the intention to help, to be of service. And then the motivation comes in to be seen as the one who's helping, or to become the great helper. And so all these different motivations start to move in. And it isn't a concern that the motivations are mixed. It's not about having an 100% pure motivation. It's a training. It's not some ideal. It's simply to know which motivations are going to be, lead to benefit and well-being and which ones are going to lead to suffering. So the more we can be aware of the changing flow of motivation and intention, the easier it is to abandon the unskillful ones and to cultivate the skillful ones. In other words, to water the appropriate seeds. And the Buddha saw this really clearly. And so he gave a very clear description of the kind of intentions to cultivate and the kind to abandon. And he said, one should make a resolve. One should make the effort to abandon wrong or unskillful intention and to enter upon right or skillful intention. So what are the, um, the different types of intention? The unskillful ones are really any ones that cause harm to ourselves or others. Any ones that have the underlying motivation of craving, ill will, or harmfulness, those three. And then the three wise intentions that we should cultivate are renunciation, one of the paramis, which is the remedy for any kind of greed or um, craving, goodwill, which is of course metta, the loving-kindness parami. And goodwill is the wish for ourselves and others to have happiness and to, be, uh, to have well-being. And it's the antidote to, um, to ill will. And then the third of these wise intentions is harmlessness, that wish for us and others to be free from suffering. And of course, it's the antidote to aggression, to violence. So the important thing about these intentions is that they're resolves. They are aligning our will. And the kind of will that they're aligning is not the false will that's tinged with aversion or sometimes with greed or forcing or striving, but it's a very clear will that it's infused with the paramis of, um, of strength and of clarity and with, of course, sila and with the truth. It's, being, it's having this clear, it's having this impeccable will that um, we in, have this intention to act from these three different uh, places in our lives. So I'll talk about each of them a little bit. The first is renunciation. And that's really taking responsibility for our desires 
and the intentional actions that they motivate. Some desires are skillful. The desire for the truth, the desire to be free from suffering, to, to see clearly. It's, they're, they're healthy desires. But some are obviously unskillful. The institutionalized greed in our culture, the individual greed that we all experience at different times throughout the day. And the Buddha wasn't suggesting getting rid of desire by repressing or by fear or by denial, because that would be watering the seeds of aversion, but by understanding. So understanding cause and effect, coming to a wise relationship with desire, not letting it run the show. So it's being aware of competing desires. So you might be in the lineup for lunch, and it's um, a mixture of different greens, and there's some, uh, maybe there's some chard and broccoli, and there's the broccoli stems. And so your hand is moving forward, and the intention is to have the ones that I like. The motivation is, is greed. I like this better than this, preference. And then comes the motivation, oh, I should be generous and be, and so the hand pauses and withdraws a little bit. And then there's the, and that different motivation comes in. And so on and on, and eventually there's a choice made. <laughs> and so we can be aware of the different movements of motivation and intention for very small things and see how mindful intention can lead to a wise choice. And then there's, so that's more the external renunciation. And then there's inner renunciation of certain mind states, particularly fixed views, judgments, opinions. Um, and we can make the intention not to indulge in judging, for example. Um, for some time on, um, on retreats, I would go through periods of getting caught in judging. And then I would notice that I'd grown in my garden this huge forest of inadequacy. There were all these wilted vegetables that were kind of leaning over <laughs> and inadequate. And so there was an intention to refrain from watering the seeds of inadequacy. There's um, a book some of you may have read called The Chocolate Cake Sutra, I think. And the woman who wrote it describes how um, she had been a guide for a group in China. And this was a group of um, fairly well-off individuals who were traveling in China together. And she was acting as a guide and um, sort of host for them. And she noticed at the end of the day, they were complaining that they had seen too many things that day, or they had seen too few, or the food was too much, or the food was too little, or it was this kind, or it was that kind. This constant complaint. And she thought to herself, these are people who have more than most people in the world, and all they can do at the end of the day is complain. So she was feeling judgmental about it. And when she got home, she found that her teenage daughter, all she did was complain. And so she decided that they would renounce whining. And so they made this intention to renounce whining. And um, it didn't last more than about a day. <laughs> so she realized that, that her method of trying to renounce wasn't working. So she introduced whining hour. And between five and six every day, all they could do was whine. 
And what happened was during the day she would notice the about to wine moment and she would save up the special ones for five or six o'clock. <laughs> so it was very effective. And after a few weeks of this, it really worked. And they didn't need the whining hour anymore because what had happened was she'd started noticing through the, throughout the day the about to moments. And she'd been watering the seeds of non-whining, <laughs> so to speak, and starving the, the whining ones. And so um, we can, through creativity, change how we work with these difficult habit patterns. And so notice what seeds are growing in your garden. Which ones do you want to strengthen and which ones do you want to um, just release a little bit? And so as we've talked about, renunciation is really about letting go in the highest possible sense. It's choosing to relinquish these habit patterns that are causing so much suffering for us. And when we do that, it's really transforming. The second form of intention is the intention for goodwill, that wholehearted intention to be present with kindness, the practice to, of being friendly to all of our experience without exception. Marie talked about it the other night. She talked about the power of intention when we choose the liberation of the heart. All of the Brahma-viharas are intention practices, intentionally inclining our minds to the well-being of everything and of life. And they're powerful resolves. Sometimes we can think of metta as kind of sentimental or mushy and not really recognize the power of the resolve of metta. Um, this is from the Buddha. It is in this way we must train ourselves, by the liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. And there's a chant that the monastics do, and it's actually taken from, um, from the teachings. I will abide, pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, compassion, and so forth. I will abide, pervading the whole world. So it's a very clear and direct resolve and intention. In order to develop unconditional love, we have to practice loving-kindness as a meditation practice, and also in our lives, we have to water the seeds. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, spontaneous feelings of goodwill occur too sporadically and are too limited in range to be relied on as a remedy for aversion. The mind can't be commanded to love spontaneously. It is, we have to cultivate it. And we need to make it an intention to incline the mind. And then we can begin to open to metta. And we begin with ourselves because love to others is only possible 
when we've felt loving kindness genuinely um, for ourselves. Most of the anger and hostility that gets directed towards others comes often from negative attitudes to ourselves or from ways we've been hurt or treated with disrespect or humiliated. And so healing the, um, all the places in the heart, as Marie was talking about last night, is so important in the practice of intention. And also we see another um, important piece of intention, and that's that there's a tendency with intention to identify with the intention. As Gil was talking about the other night when he rang the bell, it became, oh, Gil rings the bell so beautifully. It's almost like intention is a sort of hiding place for identification, for selfing. It happens so easily. And when we practice metta, it shifts that um, sense of identity. It gives us an expanded sense of, of, um, of awareness because this basic wish for others frees us from the contraction around self. There's an openness that happens. This basic wish for the happiness of others moves us into interconnectedness. And we start to experience that everyone wants to be happy and to be secure. And then we can incline, we can have this wish to incline ourselves, to have this intention, may I receive the deepest well-being and happiness. And when we say, may I, it's not like we're putting our hand up in class and saying, may I please, you know, may the guru send me a whatever, um, the perfect partner or whatever you happen to think of at the time. It's a may I, it's an intention, a will, a willing, an aligning um, with our motivation. So may I receive the deepest well-being and happiness is a deep intention to relax, to open the heart, to allow in all the goodness that's available, to not be separate from that, and to incline that intention for others, that they might receive that deepest well-being and happiness. And it moves us into this place of interconnectedness decreases the attachment to small sense of self. The third intention is the intention of harmlessness, where thoughts are guided by compassion as opposed to cruelty or aggression. It's wishing that others are free from suffering, and it's extending ourselves without limit to all beings, Unlike metta, it's the encouragement to kind of enter into the subjectivity of others and share their experience in a really deep way, to see that all beings like us wish to be free from suffering. And so we can have the intention, may I be harmless to, that's ahimsa, may I be harmless towards all others. May all people be harmless to all others. May all people be free from harm and free from causing harm. It's powerful. And even when we can't find 
in ourselves any liking for to certain people or categories of people in our lives, we can wish them free from harm and causing harm. That intention for harmlessness. So it's all very practical. It's not theoretical. It has to do with our sila, of course, as well as with our loving kindness. And it's, they're all trainings, these intentions. The whole of the metta sutta is about intention. And it begins with, this is what should be done by one who's skilled in goodness. This is what should be done, an intention, a gathering together of our energies and of our wisdom into action. And then it goes on. The first part is, a, is about renunciation. One should be humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. This is what, how one should be. And this one's for me, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. For those of you who, when you leave here, will very quickly get overburdened with duties, you can keep making that intention to be unburdened with duties and frugal. And then there's the harmlessness. Let none deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. And then it moves into goodwill, into um, the second intention. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire earth. So powerful intention. And when we cultivate kindness and compassion as a basis of our intention, our motivations become imbued with that, and increasingly our lives become about connection rather than fear or alienation. And that's what we truly want, to feel connection. And so these powerful intentions guide us towards that. And they're built up and developed by repeating, repeated actions, connecting and sustaining our motivation and our intention. Every time we act in a certain way, we're practicing that quality. Every time we're greedy, we're strengthening greed. Every time we're generous, we're strengthening generosity. We're just aligning our intentions for each parami. And it's helpful to see it as an ongoing dynamic process. What am I strengthening in this moment? What am I developing? So we don't underestimate the power of these little intentions, the moment-to-moment ones. As the Buddha said, whatever we incline our mind to, that will become our way. So the important thing about it is we see that we have choice. There's more freedom than we think when we're aware more closely of the intentions. But it does require continually being mindful of what they are, being aware of them, remembering the arising and passing moment-to-moment part of intention. 
And I'd like to return to that beautiful sutta um, of the Buddha's teaching to Rahula when Rahula was about seven years old, when he told him about the three times he should consider um, the impact of his actions. Is what I'm about to do, what I'm currently doing, what I've just done, being of benefit to me, to the others, and to me and the others. So consider before, during, and after. Is this helpful or is this not helpful? And you notice it's a both and. It's not to me or the others, or to just me or just the others. It's both, a both and. And so I'd like to sort of break it down a little bit and start with the first one. So the first one is before, and really it's about pausing. So for me, um, Gil has been telling me for many years, Adrian, pause when you're giving Dharma talks. Because <laughs> my mind just moves fast. And so it's an intention that I make at the beginning of the Dharma talk. <laughs> and maybe it happens once in a while. <laughs> uh, occasionally there's a pause. So, and I'm able to see, will it be of benefit <laughs> if I pause to me and all of the others? And of course it is. So there's a pause. <laughs> a small one. <laughs> But nevertheless, a pause. <laughs> I'm so proud. <laughs> See, they're the benefit. It feels so good. <laughs> so the second one is, can we be aware during whatever it is the action we're doing? So an example of that might be, you've gone home and someone in your family is behaving a certain way, and from the great wisdom of your retreat, <laughs> you find yourself on a roll giving them advice about how they should run their life. <laughs> and then you start, because you still have some mindfulness, you start noticing the eyes glazing over and the sort of, <laughs> the castle, the castle um, thing going up. I <laughs> you know? can't remember the name of it. <laughs> The drawbridge, yeah, the drawbridge coming up, and you go, aha, in that moment of during. And you stop, and you realize, is what I'm doing being of benefit to me and to my family member and to both of us? And so there's a chance to, oh, maybe they didn't want advice. <laughs> Can I just listen? So that's the during. And then the after is being able to... Um, learn from our mistakes. And what's so helpful about this is that the Buddha's attitude to mistakes was very, very different from our culture, where our culture is about punishment. In the Buddha's teaching to Rahula, there was no blame and no judgment. It was simply, if you caused harm or suffering to other people, go to a friend, go to a teacher and talk about it. He didn't say you're bad or anything. There was no judgment. How can you learn from this? Didn't say you should be ashamed or guilty or anything. Guilt is not a useful emotion. Guilt is wrong view. And when we can take responsibility for the results of our intentional actions, we can change our behavior. 
We're not identifying with them. We're simply seeing them as unskillful intentions. That's right view. So an example of this would be um, some years ago, I had um, a person in my medical practice who I found very difficult. And one day I noticed as I was you know, about to go into the room that this person was on my sheet for the day. And I didn't pause to sort of collect myself and go in. I went in with a little bit of wrong attitude. So I was already kind of aversive when I went into the room. And so they were angry with me for some other reason and started getting really mad and kind of out of control. And I found myself reacting back. And sort of, so that was the first and the second one were already happening. Fortunately, a little bit of mindfulness came in and I saw this is not a good situation. And I left the room. And I went somewhere else and I took some deep breaths and I realized, um, you know, I talked to one of my partners who very generously listened. And then I went back in. And I said, I know I'm really sorry about what just happened. I really, you and I both care about our relationship. Let's start again. And he, he apologized as well, and we started again. And so it showed me the value of being able to own to a mistake right there. And our relationship strengthened from that point on, and a trust and confidence built that we could hold it, even if we both lost it. Neither of us were bad, neither of us were to blame. It had come from the causes and conditions that each of us had been with that day. Theirs because they were in suffering, mine because I'd had too busy a day. And so the sooner we can correct <laughs> and come around, the easier it is to be, bring, build confidence. And it's never too late. It's always a new beginning to reconnect with our intention to bring benefit. So we're creating positive karma when we, when we change our behavior in that way. We're planting and watering seeds of trust and confidence and authenticity. When we judge ourselves, we're sowing the seeds of judgment and we're watering them. So if we can pay attention to how we feel after we've done something we regret, which was what I was able to do in that moment, we can practice wise reflection instead of guilt, not giving up on ourselves. We can see what is there to learn from this experience. Can I recommit in this moment to wise intention, to be able to act with compassion and understanding towards myself and compassion and understanding towards the other person. And that way, we begin to develop the understanding that certain actions have results, and that we're all human. We're all subject to the laws of cause and effect. We've all done harmful things, and we've all done beneficial things. And so there's an understanding and a possibility of, of learning. There are two mental factors that really guide our intentions. Andrew Olensky calls them twin guardians of the world. And I love his particular translation of these two 
Hiri and Otapam. Hiri, he translates as self-respect. Otapam, respect for others. So it's that indwelling conscience that's knowing whether our actions are appropriate or not. So it's really the social and interpersonal empathy, reflexly knowing whether something will be a benefit to ourselves and others or whether it will be harming. harming. And we get visceral cues. You know, when, when that was happening in the room, when I was undergoing that interaction with, with, with that man, I could feel in my gut, this isn't right. The way I'm behaving is not okay. I could feel it physically. And that was a cue to me to, you know, to stop. This is not working. Um, some, a couple of years ago, um, my son was part of a volunteer team, a volunteer team living together and working together in a small community. And they had failed, they were young people in their late teens and early twenties, and they had fairly strict rules in this organization about drinking and staying out late and various other things. And there was one particular boy that kept breaking all the rules, this young man. And my son was friends with him. And at a certain point in the program, this young man was about to be expelled for breaking the rules. So he went to my son and asked him to say, to, to tell the organization that he hadn't, this boy hadn't been out that particular night and hadn't been drinking and hadn't broken these rules. And so my son called me and he didn't know what to do. In his gut, he didn't want to tell her lie. It felt like breaking his integrity to this organization to, to tell what, what he knew was, he knew completely clearly wasn't the truth. But the, his other motivation was that he wanted a friend. He appreciated this boy's friendship and he was afraid if he didn't do what this boy wanted him to do, he'd lose the friendship. And so it was very interesting watching him try and figure out how he would resolve this and what his motivations were. And in the end, as by the end of the conversation, he'd come to what he knew he needed to do, and that was that he couldn't lie. He realized because of the visceral cues and his own sense of sila, um, he couldn't lie. And it did end up, you know, when he'd moved back to the West Coast, that that, that friendship ended. But to him, it wouldn't have felt right to have continued based on, um, based on giving up what to him was sila. So it's useful to ask ourselves the question with different actions, where is this action leading and do I want to go there? If I do this particular thing, is it taking me in the direction I want to go? When we understand on a really deep level how the different actions lead to results and what power intention has, um, we can start to respond more fully and more appropriately. And so acceptance of what is is not a passive thing. Responses come from wisdom rather than reactivity when we're paying attention to intention.
So what are some of the blocks to our wise intention? Our good intentions get blocked in a wide variety of ways. And sometimes it can help to just ask ourselves, what is it that's blocking my intention? What, uh, what undermines my ability to act from my deep intentions? Because we make them and then they're gone. Sometimes it's just being busy with our lives. We're so busy that the underlying intentions get, over, get masked and get buried. When we're rushing through our lives, they get lost and we get caught. One of the particular ways I get caught is I'll just do this and I'll just do that. And so the, they, they get masked. Sometimes we get distracted by a lot of different superficial things. Desires can cause distraction. I've gone through phases, my partner and I, where my particular distraction that destroyed my intention was doing Sudoku puzzles, as I've told some of you. And his was listening to the Sopranos. You know, so there's these um, things that interfere with our ability to really align ourselves with our deep values. Some habit patterns are very hard to change. And the analogy I like is of, of, of water, sand, and stone. And that's that if you draw a line in water, um, some of those, those kinds of habit patterns are easy to change. Some of them are drawn in sand, and it takes a little more work to repeat and continue with the intentions that we want. And then, they, and then they're resolved. And others of them are so deep, they come from such a deep place in our lives, that they're etched in stone. And those are the ones we just have to have um, compassion for and just keep coming back over and over. So sometimes it can be discouraging when we're working with intentions, particularly when we're working in the world and we want change. Our intentions are for difference in the world. And we see that our intentions aren't making any difference. It can be very discouraging. Fear can block our intention. The Dalai Lama said once, if my intentions are good, I'm not afraid. And somehow I found that that doesn't work for me. <laughs> Maybe my intentions aren't good enough, but <laughs> it didn't help always work with the fear when things seemed really overwhelming and when things seemed in a really dark place, which they can do in these times. Miriam Greenspan talks about the dark as a rich, fertile soil which is compost from, the unex from which the unexpected can bloom. So anything is possible when we follow our good intentions. And that's really what the Dalai Lamas was referring to. Anything is possible. We get attached to the outcome of our intentions. And when we're attached to the outcome of our intentions are, and our actions, it's suffering. And because we get fixated around it, and it really it obscures the path when we're so fixated around our intentions. If we can free ourselves from attachment to outcome, then we can be connected with each moment of intention and be open to possibility. 
Rebecca Solnit calls perfection the stick with which to beat the possible. It's the premise which makes it easy to give up on our intention. So wanting perfection from our intentions and from our ideas, she calls the stick with which to beat the possible. She says, a better world, yes. A perfect world, never. So can we be open to possibility and follow what we feel is right in our hearts, no matter what's happening? Allowing, not knowing. And allowing that we don't always know what's best. We know what feels right in our hearts, and we just keep looking at it and seeing how it's unfolded, unfolding. When our intentions get buried, we need to keep reconnecting with our motivation over and over again. Sometimes we forget that intention has, is that quality that we have to keep doing it over and over, repeatedly inclining our mind, that we can't just do it once. It's that recruitment principle, repetition, incremental, bringing in the paramis of patience and perseverance and um, um, birya, aligning all of those just to keep making that intention to not be discouraged. It's a dynamic, ongoing process so that we start to notice what am I developing? What am I strengthening? What's growing in the garden? Some ways of reconnecting with intention are to simply set it and keep returning. And it's that balance, really, of wise effort, mindfulness, and concentration. We need just a little bit of concentration to be present in the first place. And then with our mindfulness, we're recognizing, we're knowing what's happening. We're relaxing, and we're pausing, and we're reflecting just enough to reconnect with the intention that we want, that will be of benefit. So it's a commitment to be present. And this commitment to be present is not as hard as remembering. Sorry, that didn't make sense. It's just simply, <laughs> I paused. <laughs> that sentence was not of benefit. <laughs> so really, it's making that commitment over and over again to be present. What's going on right now? Am I in line? Is this leading where I want to go? So we're paying attention throughout the day to the about-to moments. One of my groups in Vancouver, we practiced for a week um, setting an intention each day. And it could be something very simple, that every time you had a drink during the day, you would be present just for the drink. And so, of course, people had to keep reconnecting with the intention over and over as they forgot. And also, got, which is such a simple thing, but people really learned a lot and said how amazing it was to choose one thing. Another woman wanted to pay attention as she was driving to work. And she saw how much of the time she was leaning into the next moment and the intention to be present over and over while she was driving. So that it made such a difference to her day, just that simple thing. People made the intention to 
um, fully be present for a really difficult situation. So they might have someone in their lives that was, they were having a difficult time with, and they would say, okay, every time I speak to that person, my intention is to be present. What would that be like? And people really learned a lot and found it very powerful. Started to transform their actions and make them aware of a choice. The intention to be present in their body, to notice what was happening moment to moment. So we could move from conditioned habits out of the confusion to intentionality, to clarity, and to wise action. It's very powerful, this intention to incline our mind to renunciation, to kindness, and to compassion. It's transformative. And we're planting seeds in the heart that are that, that through our mindfulness, our effort, and our concentration, are flowering into wisdom. They're growing moment by moment. And so we keep clarifying our motivation. It's ongoing all the time. The other thing we start to see is, is there a disparity, a disparity between my intention and the outcome? Sometimes we forget that. We make an intention, but we're not watching what's the outcome of it. What we think our intention is, and how, what our actions and our behaviors are actually looking like. So it's, it's so useful to see that. To know, it's not just what we do, but the quality of mind that we're doing it with. That could be something as simple as the yogi job that you're doing. You might have the intention to um, be open-hearted and generous and to do it mindfully, but you're not aware of the attitude of aversion that it's happening with, or whatever it is. I would make an intention to treat people with respect in my office as much as I could. And then I'd get overcome with impatience, and I'd find myself with my hand on the door about to go in and say, what do you want? (laughs) So are my behaviors (laughs) looking like what my intentions are? And am I aware of that? And then our intention to help, does it actually take into account what the people we're helping want? There's that beautiful story um, in Three Cups of Tea, that book some of you may have read, about um, the climber who was helping build schools um, in Asia. And he, he had been there and been very moved by the village that he'd stayed with, and came back and was determined to build them a school. That was his idea, I will build them a school. And when he got there, he discovered that what they really needed most was a bridge so that they could go safely across the river to get water. And he had to let go of his agenda of building the school. What his intention was wasn't necessarily in line with what they really wanted at that time. So if we simplify, really, it's just noticing, how, uh, how am I inclining my mind? Is it in a way that's bringing me happiness, or is it in a way that's causing suffering? And having an awareness of that moment to moment. And it can be something as simple as, can I be present in my life right now? Having the intention over and over to be present for whatever is here.
And I'd like to end um, with this piece about, about being present, that quality of being awake and alive, the intention for that. Because it, we lose that so quickly sometimes when we move back into our lives. And I'm just going to read this piece to you that was from the, um, I think, the Washington Post some while ago. A man sat in a metro station and started to play the violin. It was a cold January morning. He played six Bach pieces for 45 minutes. It was rush hour, and it was calculated a thousand people went through the station on their way to work. Three minutes went by. A man noticed a musician playing, slowed his pace, hurried on. Then the violinist received his first dollar tip. A woman threw money down and went on without stopping. Then someone leaned against the wall to listen, but looked at their watch and walked on. The one who paid the most attention was a small boy, but his mother dragged him along and hurried him up too. This reaction was repeated by several other children. All the parents, without exception, forced them to move on. In the 45 minutes the musician played, only six people stopped and stayed for a while. Twenty people gave him money, and he collected $32. When he'd finished playing, silence took over. No one noticed, no one applauded, no recognition. No one knew, but the violinist was Joshua Bell, one of the best musicians in the world. He played one of the most intricate pieces ever written, with a violin worth three and a half million dollars. <laughs> Two days before his playing in the subway, Joshua Bell sold out at a theater in Boston for seats that cost over a hundred dollars. And this is a true story. He was playing incognito as part of an experiment to see whether people would notice and appreciate beauty if, they, if it was in an unexpected environment. And so can we have the intention to be present for our lives and be here for all of the beauty and all of the difficulty? And if we're not making that intention moment by moment, it's so easy to miss out. So may we all be awake to all of the beauties, all of the varieties of beauty and of wonder that are in our lives. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.